Uh, you know, we started off talking about how that relationship happens in circles, not in rows. And yet we're in rows Sunday mornings, which is, and there's a place for this. It's the preaching of the gospel. It's the preaching of the word of God. And this is an important, necessary part for us as believers. And, um, you know, and so, uh, you know, and really we've been calling that the power. So really there's, that's twofold. Number one, we have the power of the pulpit, which there is something unique and special about the preaching of the word of God. Something that only it will accomplish. But there's also things that only the power of the circle will accomplish. In other words, when we're in relationship with other believers. You know, if you're not connected to other believers, you are hindered in your walk with the Lord. I mean, that's why the Bible says, look, even as you see the day approaching for Christ's return, make sure that you're connected to a body. Why? Because there's strength there. There's, there's life there. There's relationship there. There's, uh, you know, when you find yourself weak, there are others who will be strong who can lift you up. And it's important. You know, but there's another element that I've been sharing. So we've, I've been sharing with you the last couple of weeks. Number one is the power of the pulpit, which would be, we get out of Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the power or of the gospel of Christ for what? It is the power of God unto salvation. First to the Jew, then to the Greek. But he says, look, I, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because there's salvation in the preaching of the gospel. Now, let me just say this. The power of the pulpit doesn't just mean the pulpit. Yes, there's importance here. I'm, I'm saying I use that analogy. Why? For communication and for understanding. So we understand. But we all get to preach the gospel. Why? All right. Well, if it's the power of God unto salvation, can you lead somebody to Christ outside of a church service? Well, of course. Well, that means the power of God wants to flow through you to touch those around you as well. And so when you, you know, I mean, you may not look at it as a sermon and it maybe necessarily isn't. But you could say this is that when you share the gospel, especially, this isn't always, I mean, I believe this is the best, the ultimate, inside the context of a relationship with that person, the power of the gospel will work in their life. And so you really have kind of the preaching of the gospel, which, you know, the preaching of the gospel could be sharing your story. What did the gospel do for you? That's the preaching of the gospel. I'll show you this here in a few moments. But, um, so, but inside of that relationship, so you have the power of the pulpit, the power of the gospel, the, the power of the story, if you will. The power of the circle, relationships, which we've looked at. I'm not going to read it, but we get that out of Acts 2, 42 and 43. 46, 47, right in there. You can go read it later. But the last one that I haven't, I've touched on momentarily, just kind of briefly, but I really wanted to focus more on this morning, is the power of the Spirit. You know, and for us to uh, really move forward as believers, but also for us as a church, we've got to have all three of these elements. We're not just going to preach the Bible. We're not just going to uh, have small groups, because if the Holy Spirit's not present, everything else that we do is in vain. I hope you heard that. Now, the presence of the Spirit may look differently than what you have known. And that's okay. Like, I'll give you an example of this. What I mean by this. Like, I mean, we're a Spirit-filled church. I'm not ashamed of that by any means. But, I also struggled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit for years. Years. Like, I, I'm very mental, very analytical. I'm trying to figure out, you know, pump the brakes, hit the gas, and, you know, how do you do this? And I just, I, 
I didn't know how. I, I didn't know what to do. You want to get filled with the Spirit? Yes. Go back. Nothing happens. You want to get filled with the Spirit? Yes. Nothing happens. And then after a while, I became embarrassed about it. Because I could see everybody else getting filled. And I'm like, well, what's wrong with me? Maybe I'm just one of those people that aren't supposed to be filled with the Spirit. I know you've never had that thought. But for me, and, and I was young when this was going on. And I, today I have reasons why I believe that I didn't. But let me ask you, though. If I'm going to lead somebody in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is it best... If it's somebody that I have no clue who they are, nothing about them, or is it best praying with somebody that I know inside the context of relationship? It's better. So let me say it this way. It might be better for you to be filled with the Spirit in a small group with people that you trust, that you know are Spirit-filled, and you're like, you're not crazy. And you're like, well, that's supposed to happen in the church. Is that not still part of the church? Where two or three are gathered, I'm in the midst. Is that not what Scripture says? Why? Because in this setting, let me say it this way. In the row setting, it is difficult sometimes to pray with people for even the infilling of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Why? Because we got music playing, there's things going on, there's all these distractions happening. And people are like, oh, I just need to hurry up and get this over with so I can get out of here because I don't want to be embarrassed. So you see the power of the circle actually is a better place to minister that in. Not ashamed of it. I believe every believer can be, should be, ought to be. Why? Because I I can't live for God without it. So it's good for me, it's good for you, I figure, you know. The Bible says that, you know, that we ought to. We want to have the power of the Holy Spirit. I read this last week, but in John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus stands up on the uh, last day of the climax of the festival. And He shouts out to the crowds. He says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me. Anyone who believes in Me may drink or come and drink. For the Scriptures declare that rivers of living water will flow from, with, from His heart. Verse 39 says, When He said living water, He was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone. Now that's interesting. The Spirit would be given to everyone. Who would believe in him? So it's not reserved for, oh, you got that gift and I didn't. The simple gift of tongues is available to everyone who believes and wants it. And of course it goes on, it says, but the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into glory. Okay, so let's ask the question, is Jesus in glory today? Yes. The Spirit has been given. Jesus said, look, it's going to be better if I leave because the Spirit can be with you All the time. And not only that, he said, look, I'm not worried about what I haven't been able to teach you yet because he's going to come and help you teach. He's going to teach you what you need to know. In Acts chapter 1, I'm going to get through some of these verses here fairly quick, kind of in the opening, but these are familiar passages of Scripture. Give you the rundown of where we're at chronologically. Jesus has gone to the cross, resurrected from the dead. He's been walking around for 40 days with the disciples. So that's the context. So this is Jesus' parting words to his disciples. This band of misfits that he's trusting this thing called the church with. And Jesus says, hey, one last thought before I leave in verse 5 of Acts 1. He says that John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Now they ask a question, but you can read it later. But in verse 8, Jesus continues and says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, in, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now I think it's interesting here that the, of all the things that Jesus could have said, that would be evidence of the infilling of the Holy Spirit was what? Being mindful of the lost. He says that you will be filled with the Spirit. The power of the Spirit will come upon you for what reason? To be a witness. I mean, look, I, you know, and depending on your background, depending on your history, the move of the Spirit may mean a lot of things to you. And some of it may have been scary at times, because some of it was. Or at best, some of it was definitely not understood. But yet here, Jesus says that you will be filled with the Spirit to be my witnesses. He didn't say you'd be filled with the Spirit to be weird. Jesus wasn't weird, and He was full of the Holy Spirit. Sinners were not repulsed by Him, they were attracted to Him. Why? Because they saw something in Him that they knew they didn't have. Well, what was that? I mean, just, you know, and you can say this however you want or look at it, you know, theologically. But crowds of people were not lining up at Jesus' house when he was five. We don't hear of mass crusades when he's a teenager. Even into his 20s. We don't hear of anyone being attracted to him. As a matter of fact, Isaiah says there's absolutely nothing about him that would give it away that he was the Messiah. There was nothing attractive or appealing or anything about him. He wasn't this big personality that people just, man, he just stood up and people came. Let me say it this way. Jesus wasn't a natural leader. Now, he was the greatest leader of all time. But he wasn't necessarily on the surface a natural but what happened is that he got filled with the Holy Spirit. When John baptized him in water, the Holy Spirit falls upon him. He goes into the desert, gets tempted by the devil for 40 days. It says he came out of that wilderness in the power of the Spirit. And what happens? Crowds start coming. Miracles start happening. He begins to teach and, and, and signs and wonders are following. All of a sudden, Jesus went, had you know, it was like overnight... Fame? Oh yeah. He couldn't cross the street without people recognizing him. He went from absolute obscurity to absolute prominence in a moment. In a moment. What happened? The power of the Spirit. Why? The power of the Spirit came on Christ for what? To be a witness of what God was doing. How many of you realize that you are a witness to what God is doing in the earth right now? You know, some of you may or may not understand this illustration, but I'm going to use it anyways. You know, I'm, I'm a sports guy. And I remember a few years ago, uh, most of you, if you don't, if you, even if you're not a sports person, you will know this person's name. It's LeBron James. Anybody here not know who LeBron James is? Yeah. <laughs> He's arguably one of the most recognizable athletes in the world. 
easily. A few years ago, they had this ad campaign. Nike had it. And it said this, because they were, you know, promoting him. And it said, and here was the caption, We are all witnesses. Witnesses of what? The greatness of this guy who plays with a ball. He does it at a very high level. There's lots of arguments about one of the greatest of all time. You know, it's kind of like, for some of you, you'll remember like when people say, oh, you know, LeBron's the greatest player of all time, and you roll your eyes and like, I saw Michael Jordan play. (laughs) Get that punk kid out of here. He doesn't even belong on the page with Michael. Why? Because you witnessed firsthand, probably like me, watched Michael hit those game-winning shots, and you're like, Everybody on the planet knew that Michael Jordan was going to take that shot. And they still couldn't stop him. Tried to foul him, it didn't matter. Tried to get in front of him, he went around him. And yet, so what is that though? They were trying to promote saying, hey, he's the greatest of his generation. You are witnessing greatness. Well, is that not what it says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 when the Holy Spirit comes upon you? That you will be witnesses to the greatness of God? What does a witness do? They talk. If I took you into a court of law and I said, I need you to be a witness on the stand. You don't just sit in the back. They're going to pull you up front and put you in a chair. Now you can plead the fifth if you wanted, but witnesses are meant to talk. They're meant to share. And here it says... That when the Spirit of God would come upon us, when the Holy Spirit would come upon us, if I can get my Bible to cooperate with me here. I'm too impatient. There we go. It says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. For what purpose? To be witnesses. First and foremost, God saved you to save your soul and so that other people may be saved. Everywhere that we go, City, state, nation, to the ends of the earth. That's what that means. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other. City, state, nation, world. Everywhere you go, you ought to be witnessing about the power of God. Now, what are we to witness about? What are we to tell people? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says this. Let me see if I want to back up. In the previous verses, he's talking about people who are kind of falling all over themselves, stumbling. But in verse 9, he says, You are not like those people, for you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest and a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for He's called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. You are witnesses to what? That I know that I was in darkness and God delivered me into light. God delivered me from sin and death into abundance. He delivered me from myself and into Christ. We are witnesses of what? The greatness, the grace, the goodness of God towards us who were undeserving and yet being loved by Him, accepted by Him. And now we get to go tell everybody else. We don't, you know, when we talk to people, 
And when we're sharing with people, we don't have to go with them and be like, Oh, judgment's coming for you, sucker. Let me just tell you, they already know that. They don't need us to confirm it. What they need to know is that God cares for them. And they need to know that God would love them right where they're at in that moment. But here's the thing. God doesn't leave us in that moment. Think about the prodigal son. The Lord didn't say, stay in the pig pen and keep learning your lesson. It, it says, he had a light bulb moment. Bing! Man, I should go back to my daddy's house. Even the servants have got it better than I do. God doesn't save us to leave us in the midst of our mess. But we didn't get saved by our own works. Nor will we get out of our own mess through our works. It's not going to happen. Why? It's the power of the Spirit. And it's something that nothing will replace. Nothing will replace the presence and power of the Spirit in your life. I don't care. I could preach the greatest messages I've ever preached in my life. But if the Holy Spirit's not on it, and if He's not upon you, it's going to fall on deaf ears. I can do my part. But you still got to do your part. Why? Because you've got to come ready to receive from the Lord. And this is for anybody who preaches. It's not just me. It's anybody. Lots of people heard Jesus preach. They just didn't believe. And yet here, we see that just it says that we are to be witnesses. Now I've been asking this question concerning groups. And I'm rewriting the question a little bit. So, here's the question. Is it possible to go to a good church and hear the Word of God preach and participate in anointed praise and worship and be void of the presence and power of God in your everyday life? See, I've been saying it is, could you go to a church, be anointed, you know, be anointed worship, all this great stuff, and then go home and be isolated? Well, the answer is yes. Well, the same answer is yes. You can come and the presence of God can be here, preach Exactly what the Spirit of God had for you today. And the you know praise and worship could just be off the charts amazing. And yet tomorrow, you're like the holy who? The Spirit. Now, He's at church. No, He's in you. <laughs> and the problem is we think He lives here. But He doesn't. He lives in us. So on Monday, He's still there. He might be really bored on Monday and Tuesday for some of us. So the answer is obviously yes. And why can I say it with absolute conviction? Because I've done it. I've been in a great church, heard great preaching, in the move of the Spirit, all those great things. I've been in community groups, all that good stuff. Having related on the surface, man, I look like the ideal Christian. And in my heart, absolute barrenness of the Holy Spirit working in my life. And I wonder why my Christianity became stale. Because I removed the life behind it. Amen. That's the power of the Spirit. Amen. The Holy Spirit comes to validate our faith or our witness. In other words, that I, need, I have to learn how to tap into the Holy Spirit so that people see my behavior change. When I got saved, my two best friends that I knew of were not saved. At the time, both of them at separate times asked me why I was different. 
Okay, let me ask you a question. This, this 20 years removed from that moment. Should people still be asking me that question? Should people be asking you that question? What's happening to you? You're changing. That wasn't just at salvation that we were meant to change. I mean, people ought to see our growth. That's what the Bible actually gives us instructions. So that all men can see what our progress as we mature, as we grow. See, this is a very personal question. Because it's not just, hey, I'm hitting my spiritual timesheet this week. What's the Holy Spirit doing in your heart? I mean, like really, on, on a deep level, what's He working in you? When was the last time that you had a meaningful connection to God? Because you can come to church and be in small groups and do all these things, but man, if the Holy Spirit's not a part of it, it's all just works. And the Bible says that works leads to death. There's no life there. There's no life. I made this statement a moment ago, but I'll read it because it's worth repeating. That there have been times in the past and there will be times in the future that I don't need to hear another sermon. Now, I'm a preacher. I love to preach. But there comes a point where I don't need another sermon. And I listen to a lot of preaching. I like listening to preaching. It's like a hobby. I enjoy a good sermon. It gets me fired up. But there's a time where another sermon's not what I need. There's also times and there will be times when I don't just need to connect with another believer either. I don't need to just get face to face with a friend and be like, man, this is where I'm at and this is what's going on and I'm just annoyed in this area and I've been praying about this and God isn't working and that doesn't really help me either. And the thing that I've learned is that when I go to somebody else and just complain, I feel worse after my conversation than I did before. And so, okay, so I don't need another sermon and I don't need just another connection with another believer. What do I need? I need the power of the Spirit. Amen. And if you notice how I said this, there have been times and there will be times. Right. And I'm talking about me. I'm not talking about me as pastor. I'm talking about me as David, as an individual. Amen. As a son of God. I need not another sermon, not just another face-to-face conversation. I need a connection with the Spirit of God. Amen. Why? Because that's where my life comes from. That's where the strength of my life is. Amen. And so even though I believe in, in, in the preaching of the gospel, I, I believe in being face-to-face with other believers. What many times what I need the most, and even what I long for the most, is to meet with God face-to-face. And that doesn't happen in a row, and that doesn't happen in a circle. Yeah, it can, but it's not the norm. Moses didn't meet with God face to face in the midst of a million plus people. He was alone on a mountaintop. See, there's something about this. 
There's that, because it's the very longing of your heart is to have that connection with God. Well, that comes through the person of the Holy Spirit today. Now, for the sake of time, I'm I'm just going to quote or give you a couple. Let me read this verse real quick. In Romans chapter 8, verse 12, it says, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. We've all got a flesh. We've all got struggles. We've all got things that we deal with. We all have shortcomings. We all have areas that we don't quite measure up. Some of us lose our cool. Some of us overspend. Some of us overdo other things. Some people are overly competitive. You know, all those things can be sinful. Like, I'll just tell on myself. I'm like an adrenaline junkie. So, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's sports. It doesn't matter if I'm on a mountain snowboard. It doesn't matter. I mean, I think I've shared this before, but one time I was on a mountain and we were going on a youth trip and I had, some one of my kids gave me this idea or told me about an app that I could put on my phone that would tell me how many miles per hour I went down the mountain. I was like, how amazing is that? It's like, huh? Of course, I like, I like technology too. And so, man, I put that thing on my phone. I'm like, I'm on this mountain and it's tracking me GPS. And I'm like, man, it would be amazing to go 30 miles an hour. Like, that's just crazy. First run of the first day is 34 miles an hour. My first thought was I could hit 40. No joke. No joke. You know, if I'm not careful, I can become addicted to that adrenaline and that rush. Like, I'm just going to tell on myself. That way we all know where we're at. Sometimes I'll even procrastinate doing things I should do. Because when I get under pressure, adrenaline has to kick in for me to focus enough to do it. You're like, oh, that's not an addiction. Go study some medical science. Some of us hit caffeine. Now I'm stepping on some toes, you know. What are all of these things? Look, and I'm just telling myself, like, mine's adrenaline. I'll just tell you. But you can only live for that place for so long until your body starts saying, mm mm, no more. That's not the Holy Spirit's fault. And the reason, look, I mean, in my case, adrenaline is given by God. It's a gift from God. It's part of how He created us to function. But I can't live in that place either. So what I'm doing sometimes, and have done, and I'm sure probably will do at times, I'm being honest, so I'm going to get better. So you've got to be honest to get better. We just want to get better without the honesty, but that don't work that way. Let me get back to some scripture here. Quit telling on myself. He says, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. He says, for if you live by, by its dictates or by its demands, you will die. That's not a good option. I kind of like living, kind of partial to it. He says, but if through the power of the Spirit you put to deeds the death of your sinful nature, you will live. So, let me make this statement and we're going to move on because I'm running out of time already. And I'm like a quarter of the way through. Praise the Lord. See, this is why I pray before I preach because then I say a bunch of stuff I never thought about. 
According to this scripture, the answer to our problems isn't less sinning. Whatever you struggle with, whatever your issue is, it's not that you need less sin. Because you can try to sin less all day long and you're still going to do it. Go read Romans 8 and read what Paul said. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I keep doing. What's wrong with me? He says, I'm wretched. But he says, there's hope in the power of Christ. So, the answer to our problems isn't just sinning less. It's having more of the power of the Spirit. If I'll get more of the power of the Spirit, it'll give me the ability to overcome those issues in my life. If I just keep trying to fix them, you'll be back fixing them again, fixing them again, fixing them again. It's the power of the Spirit that gives us the ability. In Acts chapter 2, uh, we're not going to read it, but you can go read it uh, in the beginning part where it, the Holy Spirit fell upon the early church, the disciples that Jesus had commanded. He said, you go and wait. In verse 36 of Acts 2, it says, now Peter's preaching and, you know, to them. Verse 36, he says, let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. And this is the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up and they're speaking in tongues. Everybody's hearing it in their own language. You know, and they're like, this is crazy. And then, of course, people start accusing them that they're drunk. And Peter says, hey, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. It's way too early for that. And this isn't that. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so he says, let everyone know. Other translations, which I like the way it says, it says, let it be known that God made this Jesus whom you crucified to be Lord and Messiah. Verse 37, it says, Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and to the disciples, brothers, what should we do? So we see the power of the pulpit. Peter preaches and there's a response. What do we do? Verse 38, he says, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So that's salvation. He says, Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is important. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those afar off. All those who have been called by the Lord our God. How many of you have been called righteous by God? Like three people? That's praise the Lord. Awesome. Church full of sinners. Yes! Okay, so you've been called by God out of what? Out of darkness into His marvelous light. And here He says, all those who have been called by our Lord are what? Available to the promise of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Spirit at work in us. Now, I want to give you an example here just briefly of this because I think it's important that you see this. Because if you're not careful, what can happen is you can say, well, pastor, you just need to have the power of God and you just need to be anointed because you're the one who ministers to people. And so that's what you do, which we've been talking about that is that we are all ministers, not just me. We are all ministers of what? The manifold grace of God to who? To anybody who wants it. It doesn't matter if we're in the street, the seat, a circle. You can call it whatever the heck you want. If there's a need, you have the ability to minister to it. But here in Acts chapter 6, and I've been referring to the early church a lot in the last number of weeks, 
The church was exploding. Just in only a way that God can do. You know, we can pray for revival, but you know only God can pour it out. How many of you realize that? But it does require that we pray for revival to come. But it still requires that God pours out His Spirit to bring that about. And so, even in all of this, there's an element that God is working. So it's not like they had some strategy that if we would just do what the early church did, our church would explode by thousands every week. No, there was something unique about that moment. But also, we see that they had some church problems. You ever been in a church that had some problems? Praise the Lord. We got problems. I don't care. We're here. That's why there's problems. And guess what? The Lord brought us here to help fix them too. Isn't that a great little... It's the way the Lord works. So the early church has problems, man. They're exploding. Revival's happening. The move of the Spirit's amazing. And like the enemy does. In Acts chapter 6 verse 1... It says, and as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained that the Hebrew-speaking believers, or about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Hey, our ladies are getting shorted in the kitchen. That's what it really is saying. It says, so the twelve, being the twelve apostles, called a meeting of all the believers. Now, they didn't just have a meeting in a room. They called the whole church together. So they're like, hey, we're not going to do this in the back room with 12 of us. Everybody's going to be in on this. We have no idea how many. I I would love to know how many people were there. I mean, what was the church? If they're adding about thousands, is there 25,000 people, 30,000 people, 50,000? I don't know. It doesn't say. But it says they called a meeting of all the believers. And they said that we apostles should spend our time teaching the Word of God, not running a food program. See, that's why I like the New Living right there. It just says it, you know. It says, and so brothers, and, and so brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the Spirit and wisdom. And we will give them this responsibility. Now, I think it's interesting. What was the qualification to serve food to widows? Full of the Spirit. So let me say it like this. Here's my expectation. If you stand at our front door, I expect you to be full of the Spirit. Like, oh, well, I'm not on stage. Sure you are. It's at the front door. I'm just watching babies in the back. You're on stage too. Every time somebody comes and drops their kids off and goes, I don't think so. Why? Because you need to be full of the Spirit because what you do is just as important as what I do. The qualification to serve was to be full of the Spirit. Not, well, who's gifted? Your filledness will overwhelm the giftedness that you lack. Let's find seven men who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. We'll give them this responsibility. And we'll spend our time in prayer and the teaching of the Word. It says, and everyone liked this idea. So everybody voted. Here, here. Sounds good. Let's pick seven people. 
says, And they chose the following, Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Now, I do think it's interesting. They said that they, that they were men that needed to be filled with the Spirit and wisdom, but yet it singles out Philip here, and it says that he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Who did I say? Philip, Stephen. Sorry. I don't know. Oh, Philip's the next guy in line. That's where I got that from. I was like, I don't know where that came from. It says, everyone liked the idea, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. It says, and the seven were presented to the apostles, and they prayed for them, and they laid their, as they laid their hands on them. So here we see <clears throat> that Stephen is one of seven men who selected to what? Oversee a food program. The qualification was you've got to be filled with the Spirit and wisdom. That was the qualification. There was no minimizing but there was this connection that, like in other words, there had to be evidence that the Holy Spirit was actually working in your life for you to fill a position. If we question it, take your seat. Come back later. We love you. Go connect with God. Get face to face with God. Get filled with the Spirit. Why? Because you never know what and when God may want to use you or how. And I'm about to show you this. Because Philip is recruited for a food program. Stephen. Y'all know who I'm talking about. We're all on the same page, just I'm not. You know what I'm saying. Stephen. I don't know why I keep saying it now. You watch, I'm going to keep saying it. Guaranteed. What is that, two or three times? So we, all, we read all the way down to verse 6. Verse 7 says, Because of this, God's message continued to spread. And the number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem. And many of the Jewish priests were converted too. People miss that in the story of the gospel, by the way. Many of the Jewish priests were converted to belief in Christ. So those who were opposed to Christ had come to faith in Christ. Verse 8. We skipped no verses. Stephen... Got it right that time because it said it right there. <laughs> Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracle signs among the people. Now, this is just my opinion. I'm not saying it's accurate biblical theology, but in context of Scripture, where did Stephen perform these amazing miracles and signs? In the food program. Say it this way. He performed miracles in the kitchen and it wasn't the food he was making. That, that's the context that we have. And it goes on in verse 9, it says, uh, But one day some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started a debate with him. It says they were Jews from Cyrene, Alexander, Sicilia, and the uh, province of Asia. In verse 10 it says, None of them could stand against the wisdom and the Spirit. The wisdom and the Spirit with which Stephen spoke. It wasn't because he was some great order and could preach and could do all... He was full of the Spirit and because of that they hadn't... <clears throat> Thought we were going to debate, but I got no argument now. That sounds a little bit like Jesus too, by the way. When he was 12 in the synagogues talking to the religious leaders and they're amazed by his wisdom. And where, does, where, where does he He's asking questions we've never even considered. We see it here with Stephen. 
I got it right that time. Didn't even think about it until I said it. Now, what happens to, to him isn't necessarily great. That was the beginning of the end for Stephen. Because the next thing that we read is he's actually, it actually says that the leading priest took like their fingers, stuffed them in their ears, and began screaming at him because they were convicted so deep by what he was saying. Because he says, hey, you crucified the Lord of glory. And ultimately they stoned him. It says they drove him to the edge of the city and they began to pelt him with rocks. But it says in that moment, now you want to talk about the power of the Spirit. You start throwing rocks at me, I'm not going to be saying bless you, love you. I'm going to be looking to put some baseball skills and be grabbing some and throwing them back. And yet he, the Bible says, looks up and sees Jesus standing. You know, it's the only account that I've found where Jesus is standing at the throne. Every other place that I've found, he's seated. Being seated acknowledges authority, which that's how we normally see Christ. And yet it says that when Stephen looks up, Jesus is looking over the handrail of heaven. And just like Jesus, he said, Lord, don't hold this to their charge. That's being full of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I've never had anybody throw something at me. I've had them call me names. I've had them, you know, persecute me in various ways. I've never had anybody throw stuff at me. Just it hadn't happened. And yet here we see that Stephen is martyred for the gospel. But he was a an, an amazing man by all accounts that we can see full of the Holy Spirit and the power of God to the point that even Jesus stood up and took notice at his death now it goes on here in this chapter 8 verse 1 I'll just throw this in as a side note it says that Saul one of the witnesses or was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen well that became the apostle Paul now we could look at Paul's conversion on the road where God speaks to him and you're like, oh, well, see, that's the sovereignty of God. God just struck Saul steel on that road. I believe that because he validated or signed off on the death of Stephen, it actually gave God entrance to do that in his life. And even if you think about this, Jesus, even when he stops him, says, hey, why do you persecute me? He didn't say, hey, why don't you kill Stephen? He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus takes it personally when we get persecuted. And I tell you that partly for this is in two ways. On one hand, I'm telling you to get ready. The church in America has not been persecuted yet. I know we feel like it. But that's why it's important that you be filled with the Spirit. Because why? When opposition comes, you won't fold. You'll have the power of the Spirit in you. And two, the other reason I tell you that is this. Anytime that persecution rises, so does God's response to it. The power of God will move in a greater manner. I want to read you a couple things here. I found this as I was doing some reading and studying. This is by a guy named R.A. Torrey who was alive around 1900 he was a Bible school professor preacher evangelist kind of guy but 
I found some things that actually got this off of Billy Graham's website and that's where I found it and uh, so billygram.org if you're interested but I want to read you a couple things that he said about really um, living in the power of the spirit he said we obtain the fullness of power that God has provided for us in Christ to the same extent that we understand and claim the Holy Spirit's work for ourselves I'm going to read that again because I know it's a mouthful says, we obtain the fullness of the power that God has provided for us in Christ to the same extent that we understand and claim the Holy Spirit's work for ourselves. Many in the church claim for themselves only a small part of what God has made possible for them in Christ because they know so little of what the Holy Spirit can or can do and longs to do for us. To find out what the Holy Spirit, or to find out what the Holy Spirit has the power to do, study the Word of God. We will not go farther before or we will not go far before we discover that the same work that we see ascribed in one place to the power of the Word is in other places credited to the Holy Spirit. The explanation is, uh, is this simple. The Word of God is the instrument through which the Holy Spirit does His work. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And he goes on and he continues and he says, The Word uh, will not do the work alone. The Spirit Himself must use the Word because He uses His own sword. Its real strength, keenness, and power are manifested. He says, God's work is accomplished by the Spirit through the Word. The secret of effective Christian living is knowing the power of the Spirit through the Word. The secret of effective Christian service is using the Word in the power of the Spirit. Some believers magnify the Spirit but neglect the Word. This will, do, or this will not do because fanaticism and groundless enthusiasm are the result. It says others seek to magnify the Word but largely ignore the Spirit. This will not do either. It leads to both dead orthodoxy or dead religion and to truth without life or power. The true course is to recognize both the instrumental power of the Word through which the Holy Spirit works and the living personal power of the Holy Spirit who acts through the Word. Now I think this is, this is how he closes out. I'm just highlighting a few things that he said. He starts talking and it really, the, the heading of this part that I'm about to read is emptying and filling. And he says, only when we put away our own righteousness will we find the righteousness of God. Only when we put away our own wisdom will we find the wisdom of God. And only when we put away our strength will we find the strength of God. Emptying must precede filling. Self must be poured out so that Christ can be poured in. We must be taught daily by the Holy Spirit to understand the Word of God. I cannot depend today on the fact that the Spirit taught me yesterday. Each new contact with the Word must be in the power of the Spirit. That the Holy Spirit once illuminated our mind to grasp a certain passage is not enough. He must do the same each time that we confront that passage. In other words, don't be content with yesterday's manna. Look for what God is saying today. He said the Christian life is not lived in the realm of natural temperament, but in the realm of the Spirit. And Christian work is not to be done in the power of a natural endowment, but in the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit eagerly desires to do His whole work in each of us. And He will do this for everything that we will let Him do. That's 
the Holy Spirit. That's the power of the Spirit in our life. You know, John the Baptist made this statement. It comes out of John chapter 3, verse 30. And he says that I must decrease so that he can increase. Or he says, I, I must decrease and he can increase. I like this translation. It says, I must decrease so that he may increase. And that principle is true for us. Us fighting. And we don't even really know what we're fighting for, but we're fighting and fighting and fighting. And the truth is, is that the more that I learn to let go, the more God can come. The more I get to walk in the power and the grace of God. I mean, you know, the Bible teaches us. Jesus taught and he says, look, if you want to find your life, you first got to lose it. What is that? That, That's emptying all of self, all of who you are, all of what you desire. It doesn't mean that you're going to be some robot. You're going to find who God actually created you to be. You're going to find the real you. And it's an amazing place to live in and to be. But yet you have to decrease. So here's my last thought for today and we're going to wrap up. And it's a question. Again, it's just, it's a heart question. It's a deep question, but it's not a deep question to ask, but it is one, a deep question to process, which is this. Are you looking and asking for the power of the Spirit in your life right now? Simple question. But are you looking and asking for God to pour out more of who He is in your life? God, I'm not satisfied with the moment I had five years ago. I'm not satisfied with the moment I had last week. God, I want more. I want more of your power.